0: Hi, guys. Before we start the show, I just want to throw out a couple of ways that you can support us and help to keep the podcast sustainable. Now we're an Audible affiliate. So if you fancy an audiobook subscription service, hit them up through our link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash dark histories, and you get a free month, including one free book of your choice. Alternatively, you can support us directly. We have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dark histories, and over there you can get bonus episodes, early access to the show. Access to our Discord and access to all my research notes. All those links will be in the show notes or over at the support page at darkhistories.com. And if times are tight and you're a bit hard up, and I don't think we can all appreciate that, it's no worries. You can support the show by just sharing it around on social media with your family, friends, and all those other good people. All right, let's crack on with the show. Cheers.
1: Commander Crabb's name has jumped into the news since the Soviet cruiser Odzanikidze came to Portsmouth Harbour, bringing Bulganin and Khrushchev on their visit to Britain. The Russian warship aroused much comment at the time. What could be seen of her speed and equipment was impressive. But as yet, her name was not linked with that of Commander Lionel Crabb, GM, a distinguished naval frogman who took part in the attempt to rescue the men trapped in the submarine truculent disaster six years ago. During the Ozonikidze's visit, her captain reported a frogman had been seen alongside. The British Navy denied it. But 11 days later, the British press were talking about Commander Crabbe. He was missing, reported killed, while testing new underwater equipment. The explanation seemed thin and public opinion was not satisfied. So the mystery remains. What was Commander Crabbe doing when he disappeared? Was he spying on the Soviet cruiser? Was naval intelligence, without the government's knowledge, guilty of a blunder which might have imperiled the success of one of the most vital international meetings since the war? Did he die, or is he still alive somewhere?
0: Commander Buster Crabb, a man awarded an OBE, nicknamed after an Olympic swimmer and film star, reported to have been one of the influences on the character of James Bond, and even had his likeness immortalised by Hergé making an appearance in Tintin. Yet now, this heroic and adventurous life is a footnote in obscure history papers, having ended wrapped in a mystery when he disappeared in Portsmouth Harbour after inspecting the hull of a Soviet warship. Who was Commander Crabb, and what did happen under the waters of Portsmouth Harbour in 1956? This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Welcome, Season 2, Episode 10. I am, as always, the host, Ben. I hope you're all doing very well this week. We've got a cracking episode coming up with a little bit of Cold War espionage and spice golduggery. But before we get there, I just want to do a quick little bit of housekeeping. So we ran a competition to win one of the newly designed Dark Histories t-shirts, and we have a winner to announce. I can't play the drums whatsoever, so there's no drum roll. We're just going to hit it raw, and say that the winner is Twitter user Slowquan S-L-L-O-K-U-A-N. So congratulations to you. You win a Dark Issues T-shirt of your choice. There are three, I think, to choose from, and a bunch of different colors. Uh, they're all dead cool, if I do say so myself, because I designed them. Uh, if you didn't win, then bad luck, I guess. If you want a Dark Histories t-shirt, head over to darkhistories.com. There's a little merch tab up the top. Crack on that. And buy one, I guess, outside of that. In terms of supporting the show, we've still got our Patreon, headpatreon.com forward slash darkhistories. You know what? Just go to darkhistories.com. It's all there. Jump on the support page. Jump on the contacts page. If you want to contact me, you can do so there. You can find all our social links. That's enough housekeeping. Let's crack on with the episode. This is The Crab Affair. The son of Beatrice and Hugh Crabb, Lionel Kenneth Philip Crabb, was born in Streatham in the south of London on the 28th of January 1909. His home life was far from glamorous and the small family lived in a fairly poor household. Matters were worsened when his father, serving in the First World War, was reported as missing, presumed dead, leaving his mother with the prospect of raising a son by herself. To avert this, after the end of the war, one of her relatives, Frank Jarvis, moved in and took responsibility to help raise him, and though they still lived a humble lifestyle, this at least ensured that Lionel Crabbe had a consistent father figure at home. He grew up restless as a teenager and attended Brighton College for only a short period before deciding that the path of academics was not for him. He left soon after enrolling and instead chose to transfer to the Naval Academy of HMS Conway. After his graduation, he spent a good portion of his twenties drifting from workplace to workplace, never quite finding a rock to anchor to or a career to satisfy his thirst for adventure. In 1939, he finally decided on a calling. Answering to the promise of exotic lands and world travel, he applied to join the Royal Navy. However, his eyesight was poor, particularly in his left eye, and he was refused enrolment on health grounds. Seeing this as a mere setback, he instead opted to join the Merchant Navy, and shortly after, with the outbreak of the Second World War, he trained as a merchant seaman gunner. Through this new training and the outbreak of war, he was able to finally draft into the Royal Navy in 1941. He soon found, however, that even in wartime, the gears of recruitment simply turned slower and when the doctors caught up with him for a routine medical examination, his poor eyesight once again failed him. He was rejected from seafaring duty and instead wound up working in the special duties branch as a bomb safety officer, assisting mine clearers with the disposal of underwater explosives. Crab's duty in the operations was to disarm the explosives ready for safe disposal, though it was not long after he began his work that he instead chose to train as a diver, giving him a more hands-on role. As one can imagine, volunteers in this area often fell far short of the recurring job openings. In 1941, he was promoted to temporary lieutenant, and in October of 1942, he transferred to the HMS Cormorant, the British offshore base in Gibraltar, to work as a mine and bomb disposal officer. During this time in Gibraltar, the Italians began using the offensive technique of sending divers into the bay to attach mines to the hulls of ships as they came to dock in allied harbours. This was a silent and deadly technique. It was difficult to track and caused several large-scale sinkings before countermeasures were created. Crab helped to build an underwater working party, the job of which was to dive underwater and inspect the hulls of the incoming boats for any attached mines. If any were found, they were removed and brought aboard a retrieval vessel that took the devices and saw them correctly and safely disposed. After his partner broke his ankle in the field, Crab took sole control over the small unit, and it wasn't until the recovery of two Italian bodies that proper swim fins and breathing apparatus was requisitioned and later used by Crab and his teammate Sydney Knowles that any diving gear we might recognize today was actually used by the team at all. Before this point, the team swam in the darkness with little equipment aside from a pair of plimsolls, a frogman suit, and rudimentary breathing apparatus. Irregardless, Crab and his men foiled every attempt made to damage incoming ships from their group's inception until the Italian surrender one year later. Folk tales tell of a story that upon the Italian departure from war, many local dive units were taken prisoner and refused to surrender to anyone other than Crabbe himself, who, it turned out, they knew well by name and admired him deeply for his bravery. Whether or not this holds any truth or is an old war story is not known, but he was recognised officially for his bravery and awarded the George Medal for Gallantry and Undaunted Devotion to Duty on the 25th of January, 1944. It was around his time in Gibraltar that Lionel Kenneth Philip Crabb dropped his Christian names, and started going instead simply by Buster, a nickname given to him by his fellow divers, taken from an American Olympic swimmer and film star Buster Crab. As Buster Crab, he then spent a further six months in North Africa, clearing newly liberated ports from the German Africa Corps, before transferring to HMS Fabius in Taranto, Italy. He was enlisted as the Principal Diving Officer for Northern Italy in May of 1945, where he assisted in mine clearance for various ports, including Venice, and in August, several months after the end of the Second World War in Europe, he was drafted to work in Palestine to help clear ports of mines placed by Zionist rebels. For his part in the war, he was awarded an OBE, and made an officer for the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, one of the highest-ranked British honours for chivalry, on the 11th of December 1945. On the 30th of April 1948, he was released from the Royal Navy and placed on the reserves list with the rank of temporary acting lieutenant commander. As peacetime settled in across Europe, Crab's life was nonetheless adventurous. He continued to work as a diver, taking on diverse jobs from locating and investigating wrecks of the Spanish Armada to help him to scout a suitable location for an underwater discharge pipe for the Atomic Weapons Research Establishment, a mission that saw him actively re-employed by the Navy and promoted to rank of Lieutenant Commander. He was twice more recalled by the Royal Navy, taking on missions to investigate wrecks of submarines, the HMS Truculent and the HMS Affray in 1950 and 1951 respectively and this saw too his final promotion to the rank of commander. In March of 1952, he married Margaret Elaine Player, though the couple's relationship was short-lived, and the pair separated one year later and officially divorced by December of 1953. It's fairly safe to say that Commander Buster Crab's life had, up until this point, been anything but boring. However, in 1955... This took a further step when he was employed by the Admiralty to investigate the hull of the Soviet cruise ship, the Sverdlov. He teamed up with his old dive mate Sidney Knowles and the pair carried out the mission named Operation Claret, shrouded in relative secrecy, in order to confirm details of a new technology that focused around an inventive propeller design, allowing the ship to maintain manoeuvrability despite its large size. The mission was a success, and the pair were able to confirm that the ship's design included a second, deployable propeller that could extend and serve in aiding its turning ability. Europe was at peace, and the time had come for Crabbe to finally retire. In 1955, aged 46 years old, the Royal Navy dispatched him from active duty, but Operation Claret hinted at a Cold War that was settling in and becoming deeply entrenched. Within this murky atmosphere of espionage and propaganda, he was to be called upon to die for his country one last time. The mysterious incident that would become known as the Crab Affair approached on the horizon. Retirement was tiresome for Crab. He took to smoking and drinking heavily, parading streets late at night with a silver sword stick, complete with the pommel set with the engraving of a crab. One account of him during this time spoke of him as with his friends, a most pleasant and lively individual leaving one to speculate on the usage of the term lively. He lived in a flat in London, worked in the furniture trade and made plans to remarry his new girlfriend, Pat Rose. By 1956, life was looking perfectly ordinary by Crab's standards. However, things were about to change. The Russians were coming to Britain and there were men working in the shadows that had plans for Krav. On the 18th of April 1956, Soviet Communist Party leader Nikita Khrushchev and his deputy Nikolai Bulganin were due to arrive in Portsmouth Harbour aboard the Soviet cruiser the Odzonikidze, sister ship to the Sverdlov. It was a diplomatic mission with the pair arranging talks with the British Prime Minister Anthony Eden, Despite express orders to undertake no such missions, MI6, the British Secret Service, had eyes on the Ord and Commander Crabbe was, as the story tells it, to be just the man for the job. On the 17th of April, Crabbe checked into the Sallyport Inn Hotel in Portsmouth with a second man going by the name of Mr Smith. They signed the register, took two rooms and carried two bags. Crab's room was in the front of the hotel, overlooking the harbour itself. On that evening, neither men ate dinner in the hotel. Crab went out for an hour or so for a drink, but returned to his room early that night. The following morning, Crab took breakfast in the hotel, went out and returned for dinner. All the while, Mr. Smith had been conspicuous in his absence. That same day, the Ortsuni Kidse had arrived mooring in the VIP berth of the Portsmouth naval base and flanked by two Soviet destroyers, the Sovasheni and the Smutrisky casting a dominant shadow over the cold water of early spring. As the sun rose in the early hours of the morning on the 19th of April, Krabb left the hotel long before breakfast, and at 7am, with the aid of three other men, one of which helped him dress in his suit and gear up, he dropped into the steel cold water of the harbour and swam down to inspect the hole. Commander Buster Crab never resurfaced. At midday, Mr. Smith arrived at the reception of the Sallyport Inn carrying both his and Commander Crab's bags. He checked the two men out of the hotel and settled the bill for both rooms in cash. On the 21st of April, a police officer appeared in the reception of the Sallyport Inn Hotel and tore out four pages of the hotel's register for the beginning of the month of April, pages that naturally included both Smith and Crab's stay. The officer threatened the hotel owner that if he spoke of the scene, or resisted in any way, he would be charged under the Official Secrets Act, and on the 29th of April, the Admiralty released an internal document stating that if any questions arose in the media concerning Commander Crab's disappearance, that they should answer that he had gone missing, presumed dead, whilst testing out experimental diving gear for the Navy in a nearby Stokes Bay, three miles west along the coast from Portsmouth. This bizarre string of happenings may well have been the end of the whole affair. However, much to the embarrassment of the British government, it was just the beginning. On the 4th of May... Moscow sent a public communication to the British government stating that they had seen a British diver approach their ships whilst docked in Portsmouth, a matter of which they were very dissatisfied, and they demanded an explanation. This communication had a twofold effect. Firstly, the British press leapt on the stories and created a media storm around the affair. Soon the front pages of newspapers were filled with dramatic headlines and articles were printed full of speculation on Crab's disappearance. This had the knock-on effect of prompting the opposition government to call out Prime Minister Eden during Parliament and demand answers. Eden responded with the statement to the House of Commons that whilst it is practice for ministers to accept responsibility I think it is necessary in the special circumstances of this case to make it clear that what was done was done without the authority or knowledge of Her Majesty's ministers. Appropriate disciplinary steps are being taken. He refused to elaborate on the matter stating that it would not be in the public interest to disclose the circumstances in which commander crab is presumed to have met his death. Unfortunately for Eden many saw this as vague and deflectionary and of a government aiming to distance itself from any responsibility indeed the reply from the British government to moscow read exactly as such the frogman who was reported in the Soviet note was discovered from the Soviet ships swimming between the Soviet destroyers was to all appearances Commander Crabb. His presence in the vicinity of the destroyers occurred without any permission whatever and Her Majesty's government expressed their regret for this incident. Hugh Gateskill, the leader of the opposition party in Britain, challenged Eden by saying that by keeping quiet on the matter the press and the public would assume Crabbe was a spy and run the risk of sensationalising reports. Eden simply replied, You are entitled to put any wording you like upon which I have said. Gatesgill, however, would not allow the matter to lie, and in a parliamentary debate on the 14th of May, known now to the public through a transcript of the session obtained by the Freedom of Information Act, the affair was once again brought to the fore with the primary concern seemingly questioning to what level of control the government held over the British Secret Service. Eden had publicly stated that the Soviet ships were to be guarded heavily by the Admiralty during their stay in Portsmouth, and that they should be safe from any such missions. Gatesgill once again questioned Eden, asking, If it were the Admiralty's responsibility to guard these vessels, how was it that Commander Crabb, if it was he was able to approach these vessels. One is bound to ask the question, was the security guard very, very inadequate or was the guard in the secret of Commander Crab's exploit? He then pressed further by asking on what grounds a police officer could remove pages from a hotel's register and threaten the enactment of the Secrets Act for any indiscretion on the part of the owner, who in fact had every right to object as the keeping of guest records was the legal obligation of every hotel owner and innkeep. Eden shut the debate down sternly by parroting the line that the circumstances of Crabbe's death would not serve the public interest and could further jeopardise international relations. Despite the rampant speculation in the press and the heavy pressing for information from the opposition, the disappearance of Crabbe eventually did fade away in the background of the Cold War. With no facts and little else but a story of a diver spotted near the Soviet ships, the press eased off on the story. And that was until 14 months later, when on the 9th of June in 1957, John Randall and his two hands were out fishing near Pilsey Island, a small peninsula off Chichester Harbour, eight miles east of Portsmouth. They spotted something floating in the water, Unsure of what it may be and supposing at first that it could be a tractor tyre, the men drew the boat nearer and hooked the object, pulling it aboard and upon doing so, immediately recognised it as the body of a human male. The body was wearing a diver's outfit, but had had the head and both hands removed and appeared to have been in the water for some time. The men contacted a nearby RAF naval base who in turn contacted the authorities and upon meeting with the ship, took the body to the Portsmouth mortuary. On the 11th of June, Sidney Knowles, Crab's mother Beatrice, his ex wife, and current fiancée were all called upon to ID the body of the diver. Both his mother and Knowles, who inspected the body's legs for scars which he failed to find, and that he knew to be a feature of Crab's right thigh and left knee, both categorically stated the body to not be that of Buster Crab and refused to identify it as such. His ex-wife mentioned that Crab's feet were small and his big toes very unusual. They appeared to be what she thought were hammer toes and were raised high off the ground. Despite these features, she too was unable to give a positive identification of the body and nor could his fiancée Pat Rose. During the lead-up to the inquest, the Home Office sent several communications to the coroner requesting him to not ask any potentially difficult questions, nor to call upon any witnesses attached with the Admiralty that they would prefer remained out of the whole proceeding. An inquest eventually was held and immediately adjourned, allowing more time for a positive identification. It was reseated on the 26th of June when the pathologist cited evidence of small feet and a similar suit to that of which Crab was known to be wearing on the day of his dive. The suit was of an unusual design known to be favoured by Crab and had a neck seal rather than a full hood, although identifying serial numbers were missing. When contacted, the company who designed and made the suit said that around 15 had been purchased since the design's inception in January of 1955 and October when they supplied Crabb with his own. Despite Sidney Knowles failing to find any such scars, evidence was also given by the pathologist, the same who originally stated that no such marks had been found of a scar apparently found after re-examination on the 14th of June on the body's right knee. These elements were enough for the coroner to be satisfied the body was that of Commander Crabb, and he revised the outcome to reflect as such, stating that a sufficient chain of coincidences had been established for a positive identification. The cause of death, however, was deemed as not ascertainable. Crabb's funeral was held without military honours on the 5th of July in 1951 at the Milton Cemetery in Portsmouth. He was buried with his silver sword stick in a grave that was marked with a headstone, lacking both Crab's Christian name and date of death. His mother received an unexplained sum of a hundred pounds from the Admiralty, however, right up until her death, refused to believe that the body buried on the site was that of her son, Lionel Buster Crab. In 1972, producer named David Darlow, who intended to make a documentary for the BBC centering on Buster Crabb. His life, and detailing various theories on his disappearance, contacted the Cabinet Office in an attempt to gain cooperation and reassurance for his sources that they would not fall foul of any complications by taking part in the programme. The government were, safe to say, not keen on the idea one bit. The official line from the government, written in a series of communications, many of which were stamped as secret and filed away until they were released in 2005, was to, in the first, not offer any cooperation on the making of the programme whatsoever. After Dalo committed to continue making the programme anyway, discussion amongst the officials turned instead to the prospect of dissuading the producer to make the programme at all. Through a difficult back and forth both with Darlo and amongst several government, intelligence and security service officials, the government succeeded in convincing Darlo to submit his script for approval before committing to make the programme. At the same time, communications amongst the security officials spoke of how they should not appear to make much of a fuss about the affair, the less chance that Darlow might feel he has a real story and they discussed the pros and cons of stamping out the program altogether from a higher level. At one stage, Darlow asked for clearance on a source, which was rejected outright. The security services then tracked down the source and dissuaded him from appearing on the program. Eventually, Darlow scrapped the program, and no documentary was ever made. With so little hard facts surrounding Crab's disappearance and so much speculation rife in the media, it's no surprise that the theories surrounding the affair are numerous, ranging from the banal every day to extreme espionage. The state of the body too has helped matters on the speculation front, with many questioning just whose body it was. Indeed, Jim Knight, one of the RAF men working on the day the body was discovered and who was the first responder to the incident, said on the State of the Decomposition that we members of the marine section discussed the incident. None of us could see how the body was identified. Ten years after the whole affair, a skull half buried in sand was dug up in Chichester Harbour. Though the skull was never formally identified as that of Crab, the pathologist claimed that it had been buried for around ten years, just long enough to fit to the timeline of Buster Crab's disappearance many have speculated it was the missing head of the body discovered and now buried in Milton Cemetery. And there are further curious details too. His landlady, Miss Anne Frances Thomas, said that in April of 1956, Crabb told her he would be away for a few days on business, and that on the 17th, one day before he left for Portsmouth, he told her that he was leaving his residence for good. This would, of course, suggest that Crabb never expected to return from his mission. With an apparent ongoing government cover-up and so many unanswered details, it's no surprise that theories here run wild. One of the most down-to-earth theories suggests that at 46 years of age and with a history of heavy drinking and smoking, Krab simply succumbed to his own lack of fitness and drowned in the water or could even have had an equipment malfunction. This theory ignores any speculation on the body that was eventually found, however, and it ignores the fact that Crabb was a highly experienced diver and would have known his own limitations very well. Probably the second most down to earth theory is that Crabb was killed by Russians who caught him spying on the ship. This theory has even been corroborated by the now 80 year old ex Soviet Navy frogman named Edward Kolstov, when in 2007, he came out publicly in a Russian-language documentary, claiming to have been the man who killed Crab, cutting his throat when he caught him placing a mine. In the documentary, he displays both a red star medal he claimed he was secretly awarded for his deed, and a dagger that he claims to have used to kill Crab. He told the documentary crew, I saw a silhouette of a diver in a light frogman suit who was fiddling with something at the starboard, next to the ship's ammunition stores. I swam closer and saw that he was fixing a mine. The most questionable detail to this story, however, is that Crab was apparently fixing a mine to the ship, which seems highly dubious. There were never, as far as evidence suggests, any plans to actually damage the boat, nor would it have made any sense in a period of time when Anglo-Russian relations were trying to be repaired rather than destroyed. Indeed, the whole point of the visit was for this express purpose, so it would have seemed rather counteractive to then blow the Russian ship up whilst it docked in Portsmouth Harbour. There have also been other reports. Joseph Sverkin, a Soviet intelligence officer, claimed in 1990 that a sniper saw Krab approach the ship and shot him in the head when he surfaced. In 2015, newly declassified Cabinet Office documents revealed that the British government themselves feared Krab had been killed by the Soviets with one of the communications reading as such. At this stage, the possible explanations for Crabb's loss seem to be the following. A. That he had been observed by the Russians and taken aboard alive. B. That he had been destroyed by Russian countermeasures and that his body was either 1. Aboard the Russian ship or 2. Still in the water. C. That he had been the victim of a natural mishap and that his body was still in the water. The main concern at the time was that the body would be used as a propaganda tool for the Soviets, and that taking him alive would have been unlikely due to the fuss involved, which they suggested would have been spotted. In a 2006 article published in the Mail on Sunday, author Tim Binding claimed to have met with Sidney Knowles, who suggested to him that the MI5 themselves killed crap, and that the operation to dive beneath the Soviet cruiser was simply a cover for the job. The theory relies on the concept that Crabbe was planning to defect to the Soviet Union. The MI5 caught wind of this plan through Knowles himself, and fearing an embarrassment and wishing to deny the Soviet Union a propaganda tool in the form of Crabbe, a prominent war hero, they set up the mission as cover. When he dived beneath the water, he was then killed by a British agent and a cover-up was planned, knowing that the blame would at worst fall on a diplomatic bungle. This theory gets even more complicated when Knowles claims that he was ordered to identify the body and merely went along with the deception, believing Crabb to have either defected or been sent on a mission to be captured and installed in the Soviet Union as a double agent. Of course, this all falls quite flat as Knowles did not go along with any deception. In fact, he expressly stated the body was not identifiable as Crabb. On the other hand, there are some who discard the second half of Noel's story and believe the body was that of Crab and was mutilated in order to cover up his identity. On the flip side of this theory is that the MI6 actually asked Crab to defect so that he could work in the Soviet Union as a double agent. The mission was a cover-up and excuse to allow Crab to be captured and taken to the Soviet Union. The theory claims he did in fact defect successfully was alive and well and had joined the Soviet Navy living under the new name of 1st Lieutenant Lev Koroblov. This story was first put forward when the Western Daily Press ran an article with the headline Diver Lives, Says ex fiance Buster Crab Sensation, Navy Spy and Coming Home Riddle. This was published on the September the 14th 1974. The article contained an interview with Pat Rose, Crab's fiancée at the time of his disappearance, who claimed, amongst other things, that she had had regular contact with Crab. Mrs Rose told me of secret meetings when strangers with messages about Commander Crab would arrive at her home, go up to her in the street, or suddenly sit next to her on trains. The story goes on. Commander Crab is living a reasonably happy life as First Lieutenant Lev Koroblov of the Red Navy but as an abandoned British double agent, he is still hoping for repatriation. Whatever finally happened to Crab, it is clear that there was a massive government cover-up operation in place to obfuscate the facts. For what reason, however, the truth is still an unknown. It's easy to state that the British government were afraid of damaging Russian relations, However, in the parliamentary papers, discussions on this exact point are brought up with most members of the government agreeing that it would have had little effect on international relations. I do not think that the Russians have the right, nor are they likely to object even in their hearts to what has happened, said one government official during the debate. This unfortunate episode is, therefore, not in the least likely in any way to impair the value of the Russian visit to this country. Indeed, the casual attitudes in the debate concerning the use of spies is very telling. Everyone appears to agree that every country spies on one another, so that, in fact, the actual capturing of an agent was never a shock or surprise, merely a tool that could be used for propaganda, hence Moscow releasing publicly the discovery of divers sighted around the Odsoni in the first place. The level of cover-up, however, seems extreme in this case. Why were such lengths taken to deter a documentary being made almost 20 years after the affair? This government censorship in the media was of an extreme level and that, if caught, cool, could have been incredibly embarrassing. The scale of the whole thing seems to be an element that is utterly baffling, and with no solid truth to the mystery forthcoming, hints at something very suspicious indeed. Most of the government papers and documents concerning the crab affair on both Soviet and British sides are either lost, damaged or locked away until 2057 in the vacuum of information the theories continue as one government minister put it during the Crab debate we realise the need for a secret service and we realise that the members of that service have to go about their work in queer ways as far as Crab is concerned whether he's alive or dead if he defected or was sent to Russia we may not know for at least another 40 years. If he is truly not dead, then where is he and who was the body in the water and who put him there? If he is alive, then what exactly has he been doing and just whose side has he been on?
2: Forbidden History
0: So that was Commander Crab, and it's a pretty interesting one. For those of you who have had the bonus episodes on our Patreon, you'll know that I'm pretty obsessed. Well, not really obsessed, but I'm pretty into a good Cold War espionage story, and I I really love the old spy stuff, which sort of turned me on to this one. But I've actually only heard of it very recently when I was chatting with my dad. He came over for a coffee, and we were talking, and, He'd read about this in a book, and he sort of said to me, oh, you know, you should, you should have a look at this for your podcast. And I looked it up, and immediately I was like, yep, okay, Cold War espionage, I'm well in there. But it was brilliant and an uh, interesting story. Um, one of the things that I thought was quite shocking about it, or not really shocking, but surprised me, was how candid the politicians um, in the transcript they, how they spoke about spies and spying and how, you know, it was just basically expected. Like, of course, they're not stupid and, and they know what's going on. And but, but it's always one of those things, like an un, unspoken thing rather than actually voiced. I suppose because this session was, you know, being stashed away for years that they, that they could speak like that. But they spoke so openly about how, you know, basically everyone spied on each other, and that was fine. Yeah, you know, we have a secret service. Russia has a secret service. We all know. I thought that was quite interesting, and how you yeah. know the the original Moscow note to England saying that they are upset. Like essentially, they weren't really upset. It was just propaganda. It wasn't. They they didn't really care. Like like they that most of the politicians agreed that Russia. You know, this really wouldn't have mattered to Russia if they'd have discovered crab under the boat and killed him or whatever they did with him they didn't really care you know they were that was not really the issue it was it was more it was all a big game you know like oh we found your spy so we're gonna sort of release a story to the press about it to sort of aid in our propaganda which yeah I found that quite interesting how it was just so candidly spoken about but the documents, the original documents that that came from, I'll post them on the website and you should definitely check them out because although it sounds quite dry, they're this sort of transcript of a parliamentary debate, it sounds obviously really dry and dull, but given the age and subject matter, it's, it's definitely interesting. And, and yeah, I, I recommend reading it. it. It is about 100 pages, the entire file, but that's not everything. The parliamentary debate is probably only about 20 or 30 of those pages. And it's definitely worth a read. Um, so, so I'll post them on the website, on the links in the show notes. And it's, yeah, definitely worth checking out. And one other thing, just before we sort of get into the, the meat and veg of it, but one one other sort of thing that I, I thought was strange was, oh, not strange, just insane, was how when Commander Crabb and Sidney Knowles started up the Underworld Workers' Party... They didn't actually have any equipment really. And they were just diving, swimming breaststroke with plimsolls on. And, you know, like a thin frogman suit and almost no breathing apparatus. And then just pulling mines off the side of boats. That is insane. That is Who volunteers for that job? I, I, I posted in the week, a little sort of hint to the episode. And it was a Tintin because obviously he was drawn in Tintin apparently. And, um, you know, just the, the speech bubble of him just saying, what a job. And you think, yeah, right, what a job. Who would have done that? It was madness. So he, he got recognised for his bravery in the end, but I, he wouldn't catch me under that water, i tell you that for nothing. So let's get into the more suspicious side of things. I think the whole thing was incredibly suspicious. It's very easy to say, was perhaps just a big bungle and the government was just trying to cover up sort of mistakes on their part. But I don't, I think there's much more to it than that. One of the most sort of suspicious things, just to get out of the way, that actually turns out it, it wasn't suspicious at all, is that the second guy who checked into the hotel, his name was actually Smith, which is ridiculous because it sounds like a joke. Like, it's almost... Wants to make you face palm when you read it like oh you know the secret agent who signed into the hotel under the name of mr smith but in fact that that wasn't just his name which then makes me think well if you are a secret agent your name is smith surely you'd just be using a fake name right or maybe it's a double bluff i don't know like but that was i thought that was quite funny because at first i was like I, i sort of researched okay so who is this mr smith you know who was he thinking it was a obviously a nom de plume or whatever, Like, but it was actually his real name. So that that was funny. But who was the police officer? The government, at one point, in some of their notes, they, they tried to palm off how he took the notes from the register, the hotel register, and they tried to sort of palm it off as, oh, well, you know, he did that off his own back and it had nothing to do with us. I can't see that. Like, if he's just a police officer, seems like a, a very bold thing to do for someone who's not that high up, you know. Like, surely just a regular police officer just wouldn't make that decision. Like, oh, I'm going to go in there and sort of take the law into my own hands and just rip out these pages. I don't see that. I mean, there's an awful lot of suspicious things, but his mum and his, you know, best war buddy, Sidney Knowles, they didn't just say they couldn't identify his body. They straight up, both of them, they straight up refused to ID him. Like his his wife or his ex-wife rather, and his current fiance, they both sort of said they couldn't identify him. There wasn't you know enough to go on. And when you read some of the descriptions of when they found him from the RAF men. His body does sound, you know, they give some pretty graphic descriptions and it, and it sounds like after four, you know, up to 14 months in the water, it's, it doesn't sound like it was in a great way. So I can understand if they said, you know, they couldn't identify him, which, say, like his, his ex wife and his fiance said. But his mother and Sydney, who you would have thought both knew him very well, they straight up refused to ID him. And I, I, his mother doesn't really go into it. She just refused to ID him and didn't believe that it was his body that was buried. Which, you know, leads me on to the next thing. What what was the £100 paid to her by the Admiralty? Was that a normal thing back in the day? Or, you know, some sort of insurance money? Or, or was it hush money or what? I don't know. But that was strange. It's, I, I only found a couple of sources that mentioned it. They were both good sources, but... They didn't dig into it at all. It was just sort of mentioned almost on the side. But anyway, getting back to the body and the identification, Sydney wouldn't idea it because of the scars. One of the scars he got when he was diving and was the wash of a boat, passing boat, pushed him into some barbed wire and cut his his knee. Now that would have given him a pretty big scar. And the one on his thigh was from... I saw two sources on this and one said he was shot and it was a bullet wound but the the second source which sounded more like it fitted his life was that he was stabbed underwater whilst he was in Gibraltar and that makes more sense to me but either way he had these two scars and they both sound I mean even if he was shot rather than stabbed either way that's a pretty big scar that that's going to leave and the same with the one on the back of his left knee where you know, if you're pushed up against some barbed wire, that's going to leave a pretty big scar as well, and quite an unusual scar. So it seems really fishy, which sort of leads into the inquiry, which was also really fishy, with the pathologist not being able to find a scar. And then once the inquiry was adjourned, suddenly he found a scar. It sounds a bit strange. And... The whole kind of way they came to agreeing that, oh, no, you know, we we can identify this as crab, didn't even sound convincing. Really, the chain of coincidences, you know that that's not very. It's all a bit. Nah, I, I don't. I don't sure. I, I'm down with that too much, and obviously, I read a lot of the government notes, which again I'll put them on the um on, on my website. But you know, a lot of the back and forth about not get them to ask embarrassing questions and not calling certain admiralty workers to the stand for the inquiry, it all sounds very... It's just the government putting their sort of fingers right in there and messing with it. It was very messed around, that inquiry. And, you know, whether or not it was just a big bungle and they were just afraid of it being embarrassed, but if that's the case, it all seems a bit over the top, really. It's very reactionary. And it's the same. It's the same with the BBC documentary. That was very reactionary. You know, either there's something much more suspicious here or the government were really not doing themselves any favours by being hugely over-reactionary and, and over-the-top. But, I mean, messing with the BBC documentary, that that, again, was really over the top and, and way out of whack if there's nothing suspicious here because I think what they were really doing there was stifling the press, you know, stifling the media and not only that, they stifled the media which is, you know, not great but I'm sure they've done it sometimes but you would think the things they've done it for are, are pretty big deals whereas this, it seems like, you know if, if nothing big happened here or suspicious happened here it was well over the top they also, they, they wouldn't, they refused to cooperate because essentially Darlo, the producer, he contacted them and said, look, my sources are slightly concerned about having their Navy pensions stopped or, you know, basically just repercussions from appearing on the show. And that was all he was really contacting them for. He wasn't really, he didn't want any help from them or anything else. He was just sort of saying, can you offer some reassurance that they can appear on this documentary and it'll all be Okay. And in fact, the documentary even favoured their side of the story for large parts of it, but they still didn't want it made. And suddenly, you know, his sources didn't want to talk. And then he came back and said, you know, because he kind of pressed on with it and was like, nah, I'm still going to do it, screw you. Despite the fact that, you know, they wanted to okay the script and all this, and they were back and forth in behind his back about, going up to higher ups in the BBC to basically crush the project eventually he sort of came back and said look I've got a new source now and he's got this information and you know basically is he going to be okay to say this and he didn't give them the source's name but they tracked him down they used the security services to track him down and dissuade him I mean that and obviously it's not it's spoken of how they dissuaded him but you can imagine, right? Like, really suspicious. So yeah, they they were all pretty suspicious things that were going on. One of the sort of stranger elements, you know, where you start getting into kind of conspiracy territory, really, is if his landlady was telling the truth about him telling her that he was leaving his house, then that was either a massive coincidence or again, that, that was pretty suspicious, but See, there was three three people that kind of said things which kind of lean it in towards conspiracy, really. And, and I think she, the landlady's one of them. You know, because you can't... You don't know if what she's saying is true or not. And then Pat Rose was the second one, who was his fiancé when he disappeared. I'm not sure I'm into her story too much. Sounds a little bit like a sort of fluff piece to some extent, like, oh, enough time's passed we can sort of make a story out of this that people will be interested in reading and we'll give you a bit of money if you collaborate. Either that or she's not that well because she was seeing people on the train giving her information. But all the stuff she said sounded a little bit corny and a little bit kind of spy movie, didn't it? Like, oh, you know, there was sort of people sitting next to me suddenly on the train passing me messages from Moscow. It was all a bit, yeah, okay, I'm not sure I believe that. And then what is weird as well is that both Pat Rose and Sidney Knowles both came out many years after the event and they both gave totally different stories and they both knew him very, very well. So who are you going to believe? Pat Rose, I can imagine to a certain degree, the way they spoke, it was a bit of a fluff piece maybe. I mean, I don't know, I'm judging, but it sounds like that. That that that's, doesn't sound implausible to me. Whereas Sidney Knowles was taking part um, when he gave the information that he had. He was, that was a bit less, he wasn't selling a story there. He just told a journalist about it. Um, I'm not sure I believed his story though. That's the thing is because, you know, he said some things which seemed a bit out there, like out of left field all of a sudden. Although the interesting thing with both Pat Rose and Sidney Knowles was that they both sort of mentioned, either alluded to the idea or in the case of Pat Rose, straight up said it, that he was in Russia now. Mm-hmm. You know, he so said, did he actually defect or not? And it it could have well been possible. And, and according to Sidney Knowles, like if you believe anything that he says, he actually said that Crabb was hanging out with pro-Soviet people in the year or so, sort of running up to his disappearance. So if you believe any of his story, and that, you know, in his story, he was the one that dropped him in it with the MI5 and told them, you know, I'm a little bit worried about him. He's, you know, hanging out with the wrong sorts and he's getting sort of funny ideas about sort of Soviet Russia. So, you know, if you believe that, then he may well have defected, you know. This, this doesn't seem too outlandish, really. There are. I saw one source that said it, um, it was a historian essentially, he, and he said that he thought that it's unlikely for him to defect because he was too patriotic and too much sort of too much pride in his British war history, basically. You know, he, in his part in the war, to defect. So he thinks he was too patriotic, but. Who knows, you know? I mean, opinions change as you get older and you never know. As for the, you know, the guy who stabbed him or the guy, the Russian guy who said he uh, stabbed him under the water, I don't believe him for a second. That That's nonsense. I mean, why he said he caught him placing a mine. Now, you could say, okay, perhaps he wasn't placing a mine and he's not lying either. He just... That's what he thought he was doing when actually he was just inspecting the hull, maybe. But, you know, he said that he's caught in place in the mine. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, if, in the context, in the great greater context, it makes zero sense for him to be in place in a mine. He wasn't trying to blow up the ship. No one was. Like I said, they were trying to repair relations, not damage them. So they certainly weren't going to blow up the ship whilst it was mauled in Portsmouth. I mean, that's ridiculous. But... Maybe he just got it wrong and he didn't think he was placing the mine. However, it turns out that when people looked into this guy's backstory, they think that he was probably likely that he was a bus driver at the time rather than a Red Navy officer. So that sort of sums up that one, doesn't it? He probably bought that medal and just had a knife laying around and the documentary thought, yeah, why not? It's a good story. Stick him in. I think that's probably about, you know, I think he's got zero credibility. I think... The Sniper story is not too far out there, you know. Like, perhaps he was shot in the head. You know, if, if they sort of if he popped up by the boat and someone just thought, Hello, suspect, bang, could have at least it's more likely than the bus driver stabbing him under the water, who sounds like he wants to be a hero. But if that's true, then why wasn't his body taken back to Russia and used for propaganda? Because the British government they seem to think that that was the most likely outcome of it, or if the Russians had killed him. And, and that was something they were quite concerned about, was the Russians using his body for propaganda-like purposes. So if it, if it were true that they did shoot him, then why didn't they take him away? Seems weird that they would just shoot him and let him float around in the water. Because, I mean, surely they'd want to take him away Anyway even if it wasn't for propaganda, they wouldn't just leave him floating in the water, you would think. I don't think he, you know, the the last sort of one to sort of talk about really is did he just die in a sort of normal way or, you know, a more normal way in that, you know, did he just, was he just unfit or did he have a malfunction with his equipment? And and I I think that's a pretty easy one to answer. I I, I think it's not because it's boring, but I just think he had way too much experience. I think he was much too experienced and he hadn't actually been retired that long he hadn't, you know, he was only 46 he wasn't ancient, I mean he was you know, 46, it's knocking on but he wasn't ancient and he only had to swim 80 yards under the water because they dropped him off in the water 80 yards from the boat so it's not like he had to swim like you know, a few hundred miles to get there he just swam like across the the harbour essentially I, I, You know, he wasn't that unfit that you couldn't do that after that much experience, in my opinion. And he'd only been retired a very short time between sort of working in the furniture industry and being employed for this job by the MI6. So, no, I don't think he died in a... You know, I don't think it was something as innocuous as that. I think it was definitely more suspicious. But what did happen... I don't know. I haven't got a clue. and I don't think I've really got an opinion. I, I think possibly he may have defected. I don't think that's that out there, really. But then whose body was it that washed up? Was that his body or not? And that's just another one. I don't know. It sounds all very suspicious. His feet don't seem to have matched the profile of his feet because his his wife and ex, ex-wife, rather, and fiancé at the time both sort of mentioned that he had quite unusual feet along with that and you know the lack of scars and such it all just seems and there was a lot of comments about the body's height as well but I'm not sure how they could really tell that so well because he didn't have a head and, and it wasn't just a head that he was missing he was actually missing you know the upper part of his torso as well so I mean I know you could work that out by using proportions of the rest of his body and a and proportion you know putting in proportion the size of how big his head would have been and you could work that height out but still I think that was a job for the coroner and the pathologist it wouldn't have been a job you know the people identifying him wouldn't have done all that so I don't know if it really was his body I think that's very suspicious so what was going on I don't know as usual dark histories where we don't solve any of the mysteries that we look into, basically. And to be honest, I'm quite happy with that. I'd rather just sort of keep it as a mystery and go, It well, isn't that suspicious? And it definitely was suspicious in my opinion. That's about, all that's about all I'm 100% on, was that this wasn't nothing. I think it was definitely something. And I think the government knew a lot about it. And I suppose in 40 years when the documents come out, if they ever do, we might find out then. But... I definitely think there was something suspect here because the government were way, way over the top if there was nothing. And I don't think that's true. So, yeah, that's that's Buster Crab, who was awesome and was in Tintin. His life was great. If you enjoyed it, let me know. You can contact us on social media. I've got Twitter at Dark Histories. We're on Instagram, which is dark underscore histories. And we're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash dark histories. We've got a Discord channel actually now. And that's really been quite fun. I got to admit over the last couple of weeks, I haven't been very active because I've been really busy trying to sort things out with the show. Obviously, I'm still soloing it. So I've been trying to arrange a new co-host as well as kind of make the show and everything else that goes along with it you know and run a real life so you know i haven't been very active on the discord but usually i am normally if i'm by my computer i'm on there and we've got quite a nice little community everyone's sort of like-minded and and seems to get on and talk you know enjoy talking pretty diverse subjects i mean we've gone from sort of ufo cattle mutilations to sort of all sorts of different sort of true crimey sort of conversations and sometimes people just talk about you know our lives and you know, places we live, because we all live in pretty different places. So it's been a really nice place. Um, so yeah, if you fancy hopping onto the Discord, have a chat with me, have a chat with some of the other people, then get on there. So on our website, if you go to darkissues.com and then click on the contact link, you'll find a link to our Discord. So I'd love to build a little community. And if we can, come join us, you know, come build a community with us. It's, it's good fun. Uh, once again, I say congratulations to Slowquan, for winning the shirt and if you do want to buy a t-shirt we don't get much money for them to be honest but if you would want to buy one we got t-shirts and hoodies and stuff and they're kind of cool I didn't want to make a t-shirt for a podcast that was just sort of Dark Histories podcast splattered all over the front so I tried to make them a little bit more interesting and we got a Dyatlov and some a man kind of nod to our old episodes there um, so check them out and they're, they're kind of cool um, again you can find that at darkhistories.com and Click on the merch link. Other than that, if you like to support us, we've got Audible affiliate link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash dark histories. Or again, if you go to our website at darkhistories.com, you can hit the support link and you'll find a link to it there. And that, you know, that helps us, as well as the Patreon, which really helps us. The Patreons, you know, the people that keep this whole thing running really at this point. Uh, especially now I'm back to doing it solo you know, before we sort of split the costs between the hosts and now, you know, we had our Patreon, which was sort of covering everything. But that was nice because at the end of the day, if, you know, that stopped covering everything, I wasn't sort of left by myself to cover everything. But again, I am now. So, you know, if you can support, that would be really helpful. Um, Obviously, not everyone wants to support and not everyone can afford to support and that's totally fine. If you can't, just share it around with your friends social media I'm really bad at social media so any sort of sharing of the show you know that really helps me out because I'm dreadful at social media and sort of self-promotion so you know that's another way you can support us but you know yeah if you do fancy sort of jumping on the Patreon you get bonus episodes early access access to all my show notes things like that there's like a Patreon only channel on the discord yeah it's like you know if you want if you can support that'd be great and say I put quite a bit of effort into making the shows in terms of sort of time wise, considerable amount of effort. In fact, so, you know, if you fancy chucking a dollar my way to say thanks, then I wouldn't turn it away because every little helps. And it helps me make a show that, you know, the best show that I can. And it also alleviates my stress of worrying how long I can make the show for. So yeah, anyway, enough about all that. I don't really like selling stuff. Um, Anyone that's listened to the show long enough knows that I hate all this stuff. So, yeah, it's just, you know, but you've got to say it, haven't you? do you don't, don't ask, don't get. So, yeah, that's that for this week. Thanks for listening. It's been, it's really great to have you all, as always. I hope you enjoyed it. And I will see you very soon. Cheers. Sleep tight.